Hi, and welcome to the Pantsuit Nation podcast. Pantsuit Nation is an online community of 3.8 million people who have come together to resist the current administration through activism, advocacy, and the power of personal narrative. My name is Libby Chamberlain, and I'm one of the co-founders of Pantsuit Nation, and I'm here with Courtney. Hi. And uh, yeah, we're, we're into February. We're recording this on Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day, Court. Happy um, Galentine's Day, Libby. I know, more importantly, right? Um, yeah, so, so as always, there's a lot going on nationally. Um, we're going to return to talk about some calls to action for um, our listeners later in the episode. And is there anything else that's, that's on your mind today, Courtney? The main thing that's on my mind is how many elections there are at the local level. And this actually is a great opportunity to um, introduce our guest this week, Gina Ortiz-Jones. She is a career civil servant who served in the Air Force in Iraq under George W. Bush as an intelligence officer under Barack Obama. And she stayed in her job as a director of the office of the U.S. Trade Representative until last June. And she is currently running for office. And if she wins, she will be the first lesbian, Iraq war veteran, and first-generation Filipina-American to hold a U.S. House seat in Texas and the first woman to represent her home district, which is the Texas 23rd. So welcome, Gina. We're so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's my honor. Gina, just like listening to your resume is kind of enough to like have to take several deep breaths and wondering like what I've been doing with my life so far. Um, so, but before we get into your I'm incredible like, history. Hey, hey, Libby, you're, you're doing okay because I don't have 3.8 million friends. Maybe I will after this. But uh, <laughs> fair you're enough. You're doing all right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so we really want to talk about your candidacy. As Courtney said, like this is um, a huge moment. Tons of women running for office. Um, but we, before we get to that, I think a lot of people, um, a lot of our listeners, Pantsuit Nation members, would love to hear just a little bit about your time working under the Trump administration. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision to stay on after the after the election? Yeah. Um, I, if you don't mind, I'll back up just a little bit. Uh, to, to provide you know, a little bit more fuller context about my 14 years in national security, because you know all of that has, has really shaped you know my uh, my desire to step up and serve in a different way. So yes, I did start off as an intelligence officer in the Air Force, and I entered after um, I completed my education, which I received uh, you know via an ROTC scholarship at Boston University. Um, and when I okay. did serve, in, uh, in, I'm a BU alum yeah. too. All right, sweet, Go sweet, yeah. <laughs> um, they, uh, and so, you know, I entered the Air Force uh, after and I did serve under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so uh, mm. whenever I think about national security, I don't just think about, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, China, Russia. But, it, you know, it never uh, it never leaves me the importance of thinking about, you know, our, the pipeline of talent into national security. And so uh, obviously that was no small factor in, in, in my deciding to, to step up and serve in a different way. Um, so I, I did serve in the intelligence community, uh, advising on Operations Africa, Latin America, and then to your point, wrapping up my career um, uh, as a uh, civil servant working in the executive office of the president, working on economic and national security issues. Um, and as you pointed out, I was um, working for uh, President Obama. And then as a civil servant, frankly, wanted to do my part to see if what, you know, what good I could do from within. I mean, I think like a lot of folks, the night of the election, I knew my time um, in public service would, would probably be different. I didn't know what that would mean. But, but look, as a, as a first-generation American, as a woman, as a veteran, as a member of the LGBT community, I knew it, it may need to be different. 
Um, but also as somebody that grew up on the on the far west side of uh, San Antonio, right? I went to a kind of high school. You start with uh, 900, only 500 graduate. So uh, there were a number of things running through my mind, um, and I think that you know all of those things stayed with me in the in the months that I served in the Trump administration. And it became just hard personally and professionally to, to be part of an administration that I really saw as. Uh, working to erase the opportunities that were so critical for me just to grow up healthy, get an education, and then go on to serve my country. Absolutely. So I think that um, this might connect to the answer that you just gave, but um, when you decided to run for office, can you tell us about what your primary motivation was? What was really driving that decision? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, uh, I think you know, how do I, to me, it's always about how do I best serve, right? I mean, the front line in Iraq, I was on the front line in Africa. I think, you know, I was serving in the front line of, of, uh, of an aspect of national security that I don't think um, gets enough discussion um, or long-term, you know, strategic thinking, which is our economic security. And how do we think about that in the context of our national security, right? Some of the, some of the folks that we, uh, uh, frankly, have adversarial relationships in one respect, we are so economically tied to in another um, and so, you know, I was very, uh, I, I thought it was, it was, it was eye opening. And I think um, it's really that broad brace of national security experience that uh, is, is going to be useful moving forward. Um, but I, I've always thought, you know, how do I, um, how do I best serve in light of, you know, where I, ha- where I have served? I mean, I've served in countries where women and minorities are targeted, right? I have served in countries uh, where governments disregard for conflict of interest has resulted uh, in the hollowing out of those countries, the hollowing out of those democracies. So to think that, you know, we could be experiencing some of those things in our own country, um, it really caused me to rethink, uh, you know, how am I, uh, you know, how do I best serve and how can I best contribute to the solution? Um, and frankly, when I look at a member of Congress, I, you can get kind of wrapped around the, uh, you know, the axle on details, but I think fundamentally a member of Congress does three things. I think they create opportunities, they protect opportunities, or they erase opportunities, right? Uh, you do that with your voting record. And I think, frankly, as, as we're seeing now, you can also do that with your record of silence. Um, and, and so I just, I just felt called, you know, based on my personal, my professional experiences, uh, to step up and protect the opportunities, um, that again, allowed me just to grow up healthy, get an education and serve my country. Incredible. And you've got a primary coming up on March 6th. Is that right? That's right. Fast and furious. We are six days away from early voting (laughs) here in Texas. So, uh, I mean, I cannot be the... The excitement is uh, cannot be understated. I mean, the fact, I mean, frankly, as goes Texas, so goes the country, right? Uh, mm. We've got three of the top 10 largest cities in the nation. Uh, you know, one in 10 kids in this country goes to school in Texas, right? So when I tell you then that, you know, we've got 36 folks that are, rep- that are honored to represent our state in D.C., and only two of them are Democratic women, um, each of the, each of uh, both of which rather were were you know elected in the 90s um, you know thankful that they're there but uh, we need more representation um, because we see what happens when we're underrepresented and disproportionately affected uh, so yes people are excited about this primary you know what happened in Virginia is not lost on us uh, and and people know that if we put up you know exciting candidates that represent and excite uh, excite voters that voters will turn out and when voters turn out we win right. Wow, that is a staggering statistic about um, how many kids are in school in Texas and really puts into perspective how important um, your your candidacy is. So I've read yeah. you say um, can I offer, talent. Can I offer one more staggering? Oh, yeah. Can I offer one? Please. Uh, yeah. So and this, this is not lost on me, though, again, because I was raised by a single mother, right? So when I tell you one in 10 kids in this country goes to school in Texas, but then I tell you 50% of the kids in the state, in our state, are reliant on CHIP or Medicaid for insurance. 
right? It really puts it in perspective that there's no small percentage of our young people that live in this tech, live in our state and need a little bit of help. Um, and, and again, I, you know, I can't separate, you know, my, my professional experiences from my personal experiences. And that's why the national security person in this race is talking about domestic issues, because if we don't address mm-hmm. these, these will become national security issues. So that actually connects to directly to what I was um, thinking about, which is that I've read you say talent is universal, but opportunity is not. And that's just such that's a right. simple way to articulate um, so many of these gaps in our society. So what are some of the ideas right. that you have to bring more opportunity to communities that, um, that don't have it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, an issue, not surprisingly, you know, it's an issue in the country, but it's, it's, it's obviously an issue here in Texas, um, you know, given some of our health indicators. Um, and, and frankly, you know, we can talk about, you know, uh, public education, we can talk about some of these other things, but if we don't have kids and people that are healthy enough to take advantage of these opportunities, um, then, uh, you know, then it's almost a moot point. So I think, you know, ensuring that people are, are healthy enough to get to the classroom, <clears throat> excuse me, healthy enough to get to work, healthy enough to take care of their aging parents, um, you know, that is, that is what I see as, you know, a, critical to, to ensuring for our, our, our economic um, and long-term security of the country. Um, you know, Texas, if we were a country, we would have the 10th largest economy in the world. Uh, so it doesn't make sense then when I tell you that Texas also has the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, right? If Texas, uh, if you're a woman having a kid in Texas, you're five times more likely to die in that process than if you had that kid in California. Um, and so this is, you know, this isn't, this isn't rocket science. This is a little bit of math, a little bit of moral courage, and we can solve um, so I look forward to being, you know, a vocal advocate for ensuring that folks in my district and my state, but frankly, our country have access to quality, affordable health care. Um, and as we travel the district, um, uh, this is a district, just I should have mentioned this earlier, maybe a district that Hillary won, right? Hillary won this district by, uh, by three points, and it was just narrowly lost at the, at the congressional level by one point. Um, so, you know, it's, it's districts like this, and, and frankly, it, this district that, it, that is key to flipping the house. Um, uh, and a little bit of context about the district. This district runs from San Antonio to El Paso. That's 538 miles across, right? 40% of the U.S. border is in this district. Uh, this district, landmass-wise, is bigger than the country of France. Um, so it's, it's actually a really interesting microcosm for the country you, you have, because you have two large population centers on either side, San Antonio to El Paso. This is a majority minority district, 70% Hispanic. Um, obviously, I mentioned the wall. So, you know, immigration uh, is, um, is something that we, we obviously deal with in a way that other parts of the country don't. And then also see aspects of it, uh, you know, the human side of this a little bit differently than you might, uh, than, than, than you might expect. You know, San Antonio is also the home of NAFTA. Right. So we, we very, you know, quickly get into, you know, immigration, health care uh, and the economy, um, you know, just very closely, just given our given our geography and, and the de- demographics of the district. Um, and so, you know, uh, equitable economic opportunity is something that uh, is a real issue in the district. Um, yeah, frankly, we were just in. Equal Pass last night, uh, talking to voters, um, and, and the number of young people that are saddled with, um, um, you know, college debt, uh, that, uh, frankly, that issue has come up um, just as often as healthcare. So, yes, we have to be thinking about, you know, equitable economic opportunities, but how do we also ensure that, that people are, are set up for um, financial success after they're prepared to, to enter into our, into our workforce? That's something I think that we also have to, to get a handle on, especially in light, uh, you know, in light of rising income inequality. 
So Gina, one of the things that we really believe strongly in in Pantsuit Nation is sort of tying empowerment, civic engagement, doing all of the things that we're talking about, taking action um, with storytelling and and with, um, we kind of call them strategic beacons of hope and things that give people that boost of energy, that um, kind of uh, willingness and eagerness to put one foot in front of the other, even in incredibly challenging situations, challenging campaigns. And so I'm wondering, um, just as we're wrapping up, if you can tell us if there's something that's giving you a lot of hope or if there's something that you've been um, sort of filling yourself up um, as you've been working so hard out on the campaign trail just to <sighs> give us a little sense of how that uh, <laughs> works for you in the midst of all of this incredible work that you're doing. Yeah, you know, I think, um, frankly, the number, of, um, the number of women that have come up to me um, and have just thanked me, right, thanked me, um, for themselves, but thank me for, frankly, for their daughters and their sons, um, and, and frankly, having the courage to run. Um, you know, when they look at my profile, uh, they know that I personally nor professionally come from a background uh, that has traditionally lent itself to a political career. Um, but, you know, they appreciate the fact that I've been a public servant for as long as I have, um, and frankly, you know, was serving when, you know, folks prefer that I not serve because I was, uh, well, am LGBT. Um, and so I've just been, you know, constantly encouraged by the number of folks that really, uh, you know, want a change for the country and know that that change starts with who we send to Congress. Um, and, you know, Texas is a great state. We've got some work to do uh, on, on some of the things that I just mentioned. But, um, you know, there's so much uh, excitement about what is possible, not only with this election, um, but uh, what could happen, you know, once we send uh, uh, the right folks to Congress. This is all so exciting, and we know that your primary is coming up soon. So tell us how our listeners can learn more about you and your campaign. Where can they find you online, on social media, that kind of thing? Yeah. So the website uh, is GinaOrtizJones.com, just my name, .com. Uh, the Facebook page is, is also uh, you know, quite active, as is Twitter, and um, we've done a, a couple of media um, uh, engagements. So there was that great interview with Army Melber and the, the other interview with Katie Tour where we're talking about, uh, you know, many of the things that we just talked about here. And so please check that out. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we do also um, on our website, we have the commercial, uh, our first commercial up, which is which is running. And so if folks uh, want to help, you know, we are uh, would welcome contributions to ensure that the uh, commercial stays up for as long as possible so we can communi- continue communicating with uh, with with voters. Um, and, you know, please spread the message about, uh, you know, somebody that is, well, myself that is running in, in Texas 23, <laughs> the importance of this race, um, not only for Texas, but for the country. Thank Gina, you, thank you so, so much, much for joining, for joining us, us, Gina. Thank you. It's my <laughs> pleasure. Jinx, Libby. <laughs> so great to talk to you. And yeah. yes, crush it out there. Good luck in your race. We're cheering for you at Pantsuit Nation. Wonderful. Thank you. This week's Pantsuit Nation podcast is brought to you by Goop. Goop is a lifestyle brand rooted in content that spans travel, food, beauty, style, work, and of course, wellness. In addition to twice-weekly newsletters, they've got their hands in several product cookie jars. There's Goop by Juice Beauty, a high-performance skincare line made from organic ingredients, a vitamin program to address the acute needs of modern women, a line of entirely natural fragrances, and a fashion label that's made in Italy's finest mills and launches in monthly limited edition installments. 
Goop's newest wellness product is Goop Glow Morning Skin Super Powder, a drinkable single-serving skin supporter which provides inside-out nutrition for a healthy complexion by way of powerful antioxidants, vitamin C, and more good stuff. It helps face down oxidative photo damage, which can lead to signs of premature aging like dullness, uneven tone, fine lines, and loss of firmness. You can drink it as part of your healthy morning ritual, and the single-dose packets fit easily in a gym bag and travel effortlessly, so you can get that Goop Glow just about anywhere. If you're looking to take your morning ritual to the next level, the Goop by Juice Beauty Exfoliating Instant Facial does exactly what it sounds like it should. It instantly brightens and softens skin to reveal a glowing, smoother-looking complexion. Natural alpha and beta-hydroxy acids sweep away dead skin cells, and plant-based cellulose beads exfoliate further while releasing soothing vitamin B5, leaving skin supple, soft, and utterly revitalized. The Exfoliating Instant Facial is formulated with USDA-certified organic ingredients and contains approximately 86% total organic content. Go online to goop.com slash pantsuit to get these and more Pantsuit Nation approved goop products. That's goop.com slash pantsuit. Goop.com slash pantsuit. So that was just incredible to hear from Gina Ortiz-Jones talk about inspiring and also just badass and so accomplished. And um, I'm just so excited to follow her campaign. And I think she's got a great shot on March 6th. Um, so thank you yeah, to her she, for joining us. Yeah, she got us. me super fired up. Just, yeah, I was totally. really excited. She's so high I energy. I'm going to go watch I'm... her ad. And um, she seems like she <laughs> must just be like such a dynamic speaker in person too. So if mm-hmm. by chance any of our listeners are in West Texas, like seek this woman out and go see her because I think she's a rising star for sure. Um, Yeah. And now it's time to talk about our call to action for the week. Um, So why don't you start us off court? Sure. So um, Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act or known as the ADA in 1990 to provide people with disabilities, equal access to employment, government services, public accommodations and businesses and transportation services. And businesses have long been pushing back on this and recently have pressured Congress to pass a law which is called the ADA Education and Reform Act of 2017 that would require people with disabilities to notify businesses when their rights are violated, then wait six months for the business to act to address the issues, and only then are they able to bring the matter to court. So essentially, the bill exempts businesses from facing any penalties for noncompliance as long as they can show show, um, quote unquote, substantial progress in fixing issues. So people with disabilities could be forced to wait to access necessary services for months or even years while waiting for businesses to decide to comply with the ADA guidelines. So shifting the responsibility of ADA compliance to businesses, um, sorry, from businesses to people with disabilities essentially destroys a key element of the ADA. And we can't let Congress do that. People with disabilities already face substantial obstacles to full participation in public life, even with Title III in place. And it would be unacceptable to weaken this provision any further. So please, uh, the call to action is the same as it usually is because contacting your members by phone is the most critical way to get this information um, out there. Let them know that you do not want the ADA to be gutted in this way. You can visit fivecalls.org for scripts and the numbers of your representatives. And please, um, on behalf of the citizens of the United States who are living with disabilities, it's really critical that we keep in place what is uh, protected by the ADA and actually move that further rather than gutting it. 
Absolutely. It reminds me of um, our conversation with Emily Rapp Black, um, who mm. is a disability rights uh, advocate and activist back over the summer. And, and one of the things that she said that really stuck with me is that um, people with disabilities are often um, sort of fighting discrimination on a, on a largely unseen and untalked about final frontier of social justice. And it's it's something that we work really hard in Pantsuit Nation to bring to the to the front of the conversation. Um, but the fact that this is is being like pushed very seriously right now and, and there's um, a lot of initiative and effort behind this utterly discriminatory um, effort to reduce the the rights of people with disabilities in this country is just another example of that. And so it's really upon us to take action, to speak out, um, and to make sure that this doesn't happen. So thanks for that, Court. So in addition to taking action on uh, what's going on with the ADA, on Tuesday, the Senate started an open debate on immigration and the future for DREAMers. And this is something that we've been talking about since the summer as well. This is an absolutely critical time to keep the pressure on your elected officials to protect DACA recipients. So again, visit fivecalls.org for call scripts, for numbers for your representatives. It's a crucial time as a deadline for a new solution for DACA recipients is March 5th, which is coming up really soon. We need to take action. Um, all of these organizations, Five Calls, UnitedWeDream.org is another great resource. They're making it super easy for us to pick up the phone, dial our representatives, and keep the pressure on. So please do that in addition to taking action on the ADA. Thanks, Libby. Critical thing this week, um, and hopefully everybody will get a chance to um, contact their reps and and push forward these issues. Um, And I know that one thing that is keeping me kind of on the lighter side, making me excited um, while all of these challenging things are happening is that I've been watching the Olympics. Um, I am a huge Olympics nerd, my closest friends know. Um, I just absolutely love the uh, human interest stories that go along with it and, and seeing people just do perform um, at the absolute height of their careers. And so I am forcing Libby (laughs) to celebrate the Olympic golden pantsuit for the next two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you did there. Yeah, like that. Thank you. Um, We're going to be highlighting some amazing women that are specifically uh, related to the Olympics. And there are so many to celebrate. It's really hard to choose. But one person who has been just a shining star this week is Chloe Kim. Um, She is the 17-year-old who won gold in the women's half-pipe event this week. So let's hear a quick clip from her from the New York Times. I always compete with myself. Like, okay, how can I do better than my last run? Or how can I do better than I did in training? It's just always trying to improve. Focus on yourself and do the best you can. Her work ethic as a 17-year-old is so impressive. She started snowboarding when she was four years old, would go with her dad. Um, Her story is really incredible because it is really a testament to what dedication and love for um, a sport and activity um, can really do. And she's pushing the sport forward in incredible ways. So Chloe Kim, one of our uh, golden pantsuit, Olympic golden pantsuit recipients this week. I'm sure she'll put it right up in her medal trophy right next to her actual gold medal. (laughs) Right next to her gold medal and her like millions of X Games awards. It's basically basically the same caliber. Um, So we really can't talk about women snowboarding and people who have been hugely impactful on the sport without talking about Kelly Clark. 
She is a pioneering athlete who essentially paved the way for women like Chloe. She's a five-time Olympian and a three-time medalist, which includes a gold in 2002. And she's one of the most decorated snowboarders that's women or men ever. Um, so let's hear a little bit from Kelly about getting started in the sport. She, she talked to Larry King about this. I always say I started snowboarding before it was cool. There was no X Games. There was no Olympics. They didn't even want us out there. And I just fell in love with it. There was room for me to be me. There was a culture that went along with it. There was a lifestyle that went along with it. And um, I never actually even wanted to compete until I got to high school where I could go to a school, snowboard half day, go to school half day. And uh, I fell how in love long, with competing. How long has it been an Olympic sport? The first time snowboarding was in the Olympics was in 1998. And I remember I was 14 years old and I recorded it on a VHS tape. And I watched it after school one day, and I had one of those moments where I said, this is what I want to do with my life. <laughs> Gotta love relating to the fact that she recorded something on a VHS tape. Shout out to <laughs> people in their 30s. Um, but I just... Watching these two women compete in the same competition this week was so powerful. There's a direct line between their careers. Kelly was the first woman to land a 1080 in competition, and Chloe was the first woman to land two 1080s back-to-back in competition. It's just amazing to see the moment of essentially the baton being passed from the foundations of U.S. women's Olympic snowboarding to the future of it. Um, and it's it's it was just such a powerful thing for me. They're so supportive of each other. Um, and I am so thrilled that um, Chloe was able to win gold and that Kelly was able to um, go out of her Olympic career really um, showing what she can do. I love it so much. And it, it reminds me of sort of just what's happening in so many other, you know, industries and spaces. It reminds me of a lot of the conversations that we've had sort of um, week to week in the podcast, like, you know, talking with incredible young women like Nadia last week and, and then talking with uh, women that, you know, have been doing this work and been activists for, for decades now. And, and that mm-hmm. sort of interplay of, of passing the baton, um, we talk about in Pantsuit Nation sort of thinking about rungs of the ladder and thinking about women, um, you know, regardless of age, who might have more experience or more familiarity or more confidence in a certain issue or, um, uh, you know, level of activism, reaching down and helping the women um, behind them come up. And so um, it's just a, it's a really profound um, example that's like right in front of us right now in the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's a really beautiful symbol for where we are right now. Um, U.S. women like the Olympic team, but also U.S. women like the force that's happening right now. Absolutely. So that is the first edition of the Olympic Golden Pantsuit to two Can't pioneer wait to women see snowboarders. What you come up with next week. <laughs> <laughs> you should have seen me. Ooh, I did a deep dive on Olympians. Oh, love it. So Chloe Kim and Kelly Clark, pantsuits in the mail. <laughs> Amazing. Well, that um, wraps us up for the podcast this week. Um, Thank you so much to our guest, Gina Ortiz-Jones, for joining us. Really looking forward to hearing what happens in her primary race in a few weeks. Thank you to our sponsor this week, Goop, and to our team at Cadence 13. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps others find the podcast. You can visit us at pantsuitnation.org, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at pantsuitnation, and check out our Medium publication, medium.com slash pantsuitnation. We will be back next week and we'll talk to you then soon. And don't forget, this democracy is your democracy, so stay engaged. Thanks, Court. Talk to you soon. Bye, Liv. Have a good week. Bye.